You are listening to 10,000 Swamp Leaders, leadership conversations that explore adapting and thriving in a complex world with Rick Torsett and guests. Hi, everybody. This is Rick Torsett, and welcome back to 10,000 Swamp Leaders. This is the podcast where we have conversations with people who have made some decision in their personal and professional life to raise their hand and choose to lead on some complex and difficult challenges in the world. Today, my guest is all the way down in Melbourne, Australia. I don't know how we're pulling this off. Thank gosh, time zones are good. Nick Condegrave is my guest today. Nick is bringing, Nick, what I call, or what the French would call a bricolage background of mosaic of skills and talents that you've combined together in some pretty interesting configurations to help people build their leadership capacity. I really am looking forward to this conversation because you're chasing down the same road that I follow a lot. So first of all, welcome to the swamps. Good to have you. Thanks, Rick. And it's really, it's a great honor to talk to you today. So thank you for that. You're welcome. So before we get into anything, I'm going to turn it over to you to give people a sense of who you are. Tell them what it is you want them to know about you, to think establishes context or background, anything you think makes sense to help them follow us along in our conversation. Thanks, Rick. So bricolage is an interesting word. I haven't used that before. But yeah, I started my career in 1986 as a junior auditor in London. That didn't last very long, lasted nine months. But I did discover what sort of a negative or bad culture in an organization can look like. It was one of the big eight accounting firms at the time. And so I left and went traveling, came back to Australia and found my way into advertising, which seemed like a good idea at the time. And I spent 10 years in advertising in Australia and four of those in Asia. And you know, while it was an interesting career and I enjoyed sort of the creative side of things, although I was on this, you know, it was what they in the industry call a suit, I was account service. I just, it lacked the sense of purpose. I remember sitting in a meeting with a couple of senior colleagues and they were getting very animated about uh, the benefits of wet cat food. And I felt like this is <laughs> really not something that's going to keep me energized in my career. So I had the sense to speak to someone who I trusted and I asked them their advice and said, what do you think? And his point to me was that I seemed to like the people stuff. And he also thought that, you know, one should keep on learning. And so he referred me to a postgraduate course in organization behavior. And it was really the turning point. I can remember sitting there on a corner in a city cafe in Melbourne. And it was just like someone had opened up the doors and the wind blew through an opportunity all of a sudden. There was opportunity in front of me. And so it was one of those turning moments, turning points in my life. So I went back to university and the text that I, one of the texts that I had to read, the forward of, from the author, his intent of this book was to help make organizations fit for humans. And I thought, wow, that's just such a compelling idea. Having come from you know, the negative culture of a big eight accounting firm back in 86, having spent 10 years in advertising, which they weren't bad organizations, but they weren't particularly the best led organizations in the world. This seemed to me like a really wonderful idea and a purpose. And I thought I wanted to do that. So I was very fortunate in finding my way to a company called Hay Group in 1997 where I joined as sort of the bottom of the, I had to sort of restart my career from the beginning again, because I joined as a junior. And Hay Group was a, a niche consulting firm, global, focused on the areas of organization design and reward and leadership. And its leadership practice came out of the Harvard School of Psychology, led by Dave McClellan and Richard Boyatis. So you know, that's really where I found my home. And I found the world of leadership. And I found a way of looking at the world where I could actually help leaders 
create a climate where people can do their best work. And that sort of became my raison d'etre. So I sort of, that's where I feel like I grew up. And it's also where I discovered education because while I'm not a teacher and I haven't, you know, or been a school principal, I was uh, privileged enough to work on a, a program of leadership development called the Leading Australian Schools Program, which was a six-year program in collaboration between Hay Group and University of Melbourne on behalf of what was the became the Australian Institute of Teaching and School Leadership. It was a national program, and I got to work with nearly 500 school leaders over those six years. And it's the work that they did as school principals to create a context where teachers could do their best work, where children could truly learn and thrive. It just really grabbed my heart. It was quite compelling. So I fell in love with education as a sector. And then after 20 years at Hay Group, I had the privilege of moving over to EY with a mutual friend of ours, Adam Camwell, where he was building out a leadership practice globally. And that really actually expanded my horizons because while I've been very deep and narrow in the world of Hay Group, I think what EY showed me was a much broader sweep of different ways of looking at the same problem. So, you know, I had the privilege of meeting and working with Bob Keegan, who I think his work around adult development is is seminal. I had the privilege of working with uh, Jervis Bush around clear leadership and also was able to bring Ruth Wagerman, who's a colleague of mine from Hay Group and and now a colleague in business around her work and how do you set the conditions for high-performing teams. So bringing all that together has led me to, I think, the reason we're here today around the idea of getting involved in helping to lead transformation in education and the adaptive leadership work of Heifetz. I remember reading his book, Leadership Without Easy Answers, in the must have been the early 2000s. And I was reading and I just went, oh my God, this is like putting everything into practice that I've been thinking about because my postgraduate work in organization change and consulting had introduced me to, you know, the psychodynamics of work, the Tavistock Institute work, but I'd never found a way to put it into practice. And I think Heifetz's work, Heifetz and Linsky's work does that. It really takes that holistic view of organizations and puts it into practice. So, you know, I've now working in the field of organizational or leading transformation in education, which we can talk about further on down the track, and continue to work in the six team conditions world. We've just started a business locally to help promote that work because we believe that we need to move from an individual perspective to a collective perspective. We think the problems we're trying to solve, the complex adaptive problems that I think really engage you and colleagues, you know, need teams and teams of teams. So we've set up a business locally and we're, we're in the process of doing that. And so that brings us today, Rick. Well, that's today and into the future. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that when you and I started exchanging about a month or six weeks ago, I don't know exactly when it was, it was slow emerging, but it occurred to me as I was watching or reading the things that you were passing back and forth to me that, and you had written something, and I'm just, I'm going to quote this. I think I got this right, that you are interested in integrating theory and practice to help leaders learn how to lead on the job. And that was a piece that jumped out at me because the work that I'm most interested in, have been interested for a long time, is moving from insight to capacity with the ability to actually do something different when it matters, when the clock's running, when something's at stake. And, you know, my perspective is that insights actually come rather cheap and in the marketplace. It's what can you do with them when it really matters. And so when I was reading what the work you're doing, and we'll talk a little bit about six team collaborations here in a moment, but I want to get your take on this right from the get-go here, which is what is your point of view or what is it that you have learned 
in this journey about what it takes for people who want to be good at leading, forget the framework for the moment, but they just want to get better at the capacity of leading. What does it take for them to actually build that capacity? We're using the word practice here, but what fits inside from your experience? What are some of the things that need to live inside the practice that gives people a a decent chance to be able to grow their capacity? Well, it's such a great question. I suppose it comes to this idea. So I've been involved in leadership development for 25 years now and have worked with, I think, thousands of leaders over the time and primarily in program work. You know, leaders take off site, they learn something new, they have an epiphany. And then we have this issue of transference. And so the, the issue of how do we get leaders to do it on the job? And so I've always had this sort of fantasy of, you know, how could I walk alongside a leader and be with them as they do the work, but without, you know, being accused of being a stalker. And it's also a commercial model. It's, you know, it's not sustainable. So the first paper that I wrote around leadership as a learning activity, my proposition was was a couple of things. Firstly, Lewin's idea that we learn best when we discover it for ourselves is something that really grabs me. And so part of my, what I'm looking for, and I certainly haven't solved for this, but what I'm looking to do with you know myself and others is to find ways to create an environment where people can do the learning on the job. And what I notice is, and hence why I wrote the paper, is that organizations in the main are not set up for learning. And this is one of the things that Bob Keegan makes the point that organizations are designed for delivery, not the development. And I think if we're going to lead in the complexity of the world we are, we need to adapt. We need to be learning. We need to bring learning on the job. So my proposition to leaders is how can they become more self-aware of their own practice in the here and now as they're doing the work in the environments that they operate in to seek to continue to learn? And that, I think, is hard if it's you know, this is this move away from individual collective, because I do see us spend too much time focusing on the individual. And if the fantasy, if we just had better leaders, it would all be solved. I think we need to be a bit more holistic and say, how do we create conditions for leaders to do good work? And this loops because ultimately leaders have create the conditions. And so it's sort of, it's a, a self-referencing model. But what I notice is that when leaders actually step back, give themselves the permission to not know and create a term I've heard, negative capability. There's a poem by Keats that quotes this. I haven't read that, but I'll say it. It's about the ability to create a space where we can actually receive and we can open ourselves up to learning. But that takes courage because, as I say, organizations aren't set up for this. So I'm not sure if that's a bit of a rambling answer, Rick, but it's a, I'm looking for ways of engaging with leaders who can actually bring the idea of learning in their work on the job every day. Okay, so let's not lose that, but let's come at it from a couple of different angles then, because I think that you're involved with probably multiple explorations to begin to get some progress on that question you just raised. So I don't know if this is the right time in this conversation to bring in six team conditions, but it strikes me the earlier comment you made in your introduction about team learning versus individual learning, I'm sure is what drew you to this organization and why you're aligned with them. So give people who don't know anything about six team conditions, some context and framing as to what the six conditions are that constitutes the model. And then we can go from there. Yeah. Well, if I could just wind a little back and I know people will accuse me of being too focused on theory, but you know, as Lewin said, nothing as practical as a good theory. But the work began Richard Hackman at Harvard in the 90s and Ruth Wagman and he were doing, looking at, well, what actually accounts for high-performing teams? And in fact, people just assume teams outperform individuals. 
And Hackman did the work to show that, in fact, a well-designed team, high-performing teams, actually do outperform individuals. But if most teams aren't high-performing, and the research that the team did with Hay Group back in the late 90s showed that about 75% of teams are either mediocre or poor-performing based on the criteria of do they meet or exceed the expectations of their stakeholders. So in the main, high-performing teams are really outstanding when they're well-designed. And so what they did was a lot of the research at the time looked at the individual leaders and the attributes of the leaders, and it was very behaviorally based as though it was all about the leader. But what they showed was actually if leaders set up conditions, and the conditions are, the first condition is a real team. So a real team is defined as being bounded. So it's we know who's on the team stable, it's got time to be a team, like build relationships and interdependent. And that's the critical piece is that they have a task that they have to do together. Most teams are team in name only. They come together where they say they're a team, but they've not actually done the work of what is our collective work? What do we own as interdependence? And if you look at at the core of what makes collaboration really powerful, and this is based on, so I write my thesis for my master's on collaboration. And I notice in the literature that people don't define it. They just say the word and assume they're all talking about the same thing. And I don't think they are. But if at the core of good collaboration is the interdependence that you and I are now dependent upon one another to actually work together, we are intimate, we share knowledge. And so we're tied at the hip. And there's risk in that, right? That's not like a warm bath. That's risky. But it's that creative tension and that generative opportunity to create something new. So it's that a real team has a compelling purpose based on the interdependent task. And the funny thing about the compelling purpose piece is that a compelling purpose is consequential. It matters. It's challenging. There's stretching it. But it's also clear. And the research showed that all teams think that the work they do is consequential. It's really challenging, but they're not sure what it is, which shows you that the independent task is actually hasn't been worked out. And so I think most people get in a room, think they're going to just team together magically, and they don't. And so they miss each other. They don't really collaborate. It's too risky because, you know, no one's quite sure how to work. It's like, you know, everyone walking into a room, you know, ready to dance, but no one's sure how to get on the dance floor. And then the third essential condition is having the right people relative to the task so that you've got the right skills, capabilities, and diversity of perspective is another one, which you would notice in a lot of large corporates these days, the focus on diversity and inclusion is absolutely correct. Because in a complex world, diversity gives you more perspective. But as we know, diversity without inclusion is just a recipe for conflict. And so creating that inclusion. And then there's there's three supporting conditions that create that. But those three essentials are a place that any leader of any team can begin doing the thoughtful work of just actually, how do I want to design this team for success? Okay. So here's the timeless question for you. You might as well weigh in for the books of history here. What is your definition of leading? So a few years ago, someone asked me that question. I was foolish enough to answer it because, and I tried to give out an answer, but as a colleague, a friend of ours, Graham Finlay would tell you, when you look on Google Scholar and you put the word leadership is, and you use the word leading, not leadership. So I'll, I'll differentiate that. But if you put the word leadership into Google Scholar, you get 5 million hits. So leading for me is about creating, well, actually, I'll cheat and just use McClellan's statement. So I think leading is about creating conditions where people can do their best work, where you can create the conditions where relative to something that's meaningful for us all, so it's a something that's bigger than any one individual, that people feel stronger and more capable in achieving, you know, in flourishing in that space and achieving that task. So 
for me, leading is about creating the conditions where you know people feel stronger and more capable relative to the challenges they have in front of them would be a way of putting a stake in the ground. Good. All right. I won't hold you to that. It's fungible. You may discover something next week you want to add or delete from it, but that's a decent start for us. So let's talk a little bit then about, I want to ask you to start with, you gave us this, this description of the journey you took professionally. I'm interested in the one or two moments in your life, aside from the cafe when the doors opened and you saw the wonder, what has drawn you to this work of helping people build this capacity to lead? What speaks to your core human purpose in the world that has you want to express yourself in this form? I'll use an event that happened when I was at the accounting firm in 1986, just because it's sort of it's always resonated strongly with me. So I'm a junior auditor as an Australian in a London firm. So you can't be much lower on the social hierarchy being Australian as, you know, a cult, you know, from antipodes and being a junior in an accounting firm. So, you know, it's sort of on the lowest rung of the organizational hierarchy. And it was five o'clock on a Friday night in the middle of winter in London. So it's dark. It's five to five. My mind has, you know, I'm doing a job that I find pretty boring. I'm surrounded by a group of people who I don't engage with. I just culturally didn't fit. And all I can think of is I'm about to go down the pub and meet my friends. And I'm thinking like, that's where my mind's gone to. I'm I'm going to be released from this tedium. And at five to five, the partner on the audit walks into the room with a box of photocopying and sort of drops it on my desk and says, have this copied on my desk at nine o'clock on Monday morning. And my mind immediately goes to, well, there's three hours worth of work sitting in a dark room photocopying, which, you know, made me despondent as such. But what made me really angry was the glint in his eye, the joy he got out of actually basically giving someone a really shitty task at that time of night just for the fun of it. And I just thought, what is it about creating, like, what is that in an organizational sense? Like, what benefit do you get out of that? And it struck me that these organizations were not set up to, help people flourish. And it seemed to me just like a waste of opportunity. Like it's just as it didn't seem to serve any purpose other than that individual. There was no collective benefit. And I suppose I carried that with me as a, why would you do that? That's why I left the industry and then went to find my way into, you know, advertising as a sort of a the second try. And while advertising was interesting, it just didn't seem to add up to anything bigger than the money. And I wanted to do something that actually had an impact greater than myself, greater than us, like something that accreted, something was accretive, something built. And so when I found my way to that textbook saying that he wanted to create organizations for his, that were fit for humans, I just went, oh, okay, that's something bigger than me. You know, that's something, you know, where that something bigger than me comes from, you know, I suppose comes from my family of origin, you know, sort of thinking back to it. My brother grew up as a gay man who was in the 70s and that was not, you know, pro, he was sort of not, uh, he was marginalized for his sexual orientation. And so he you know, gave me sort of an insight as to what it's like to be marginalized and, and to not be allowed to express who you are, you know, fully. And he was my older brother, so he's my hero in a sense. So maybe that's some of it. My parents were very, you know, on the artistic sort of side of bringing people together and creating things, you know, together as part of that. So, yeah. Okay. So that just takes us to, I think, a, at least for me, a recurring question in this podcast. How do you use yourself to lead in your work and in your life? Yeah. So as I say in my second paper, I think, you know, as a leader, you are the instrument of the work. Like 
it's through your own how you step into the world and the intent and the impact you have. So, you know, I try to be self-aware. I've done a lot of personal work around understanding my own drivers and reflecting on why I do what I do. You know, I've got a, a daily practice of meditation to try and quiet the mind and be aware of how I'm showing up. But I also recognize that it's not all about me. It's about the environment in which I, you know, operate. So I try to be aware and open to what's going on around me. I mean, Peter Block writes beautifully, I think, in Flawless Consulting that, you know, the art of consulting is about using thoughts and feelings in service of the work. And so that's how I try to show up in my work. And sometimes that requires me to, and I did this recently where I, you know, was working with a group and admitted to them that we've designed a day together. I think it's the right thing to do, but I can't guarantee it's going to work. And I did that deliberately because I was asking them to step in and try something new. And I didn't want to pretend that I was sitting there with all the answers. So I wanted to actually be honest. And so with this group that I've been working with, so this is in the South Australian education system, I've been trying to be open and honest about my own learning as I go through the process. As we tackle these challenges, the South Australian Department have crafted a new purpose for education and a new strategy. And they're, you know, I'm working with the leaders to put it into practice. And it's a real expression of these leaders learning how to lead this, you know, learning their way forward, if you like, in putting this into practice. In a couple of the papers you've written, you do, I think, is quite an interesting and wonderful job. And I, I'll remind people here now that the papers that we're referencing here, we'll put links in the show notes too, so that they can find those after they listen to the episode. But you do some interesting, back to our Bricolor model here, you have configured a few different frameworks, if you want to call them that, into what you think is a useful design for developing leadership capacity. So let's if you don't mind, maybe not all of them, but take the what you think are the the core elements of, of some of the things you think make up a decent chance for people to build capacity to lead that they would be wise to at least consider. Sure. So a couple of things that I think, I mean, academia, people are successful in academia by coming up with original ideas. And while I'm not an academic and I have a great love for the academic product, what annoys me about that is that really good work gets left on the shelf and doesn't get referred to. So my ambition was to draw you know, back into the conversation, I think, the great thinkers of our time in organization development, people like you know, Kurt Lewin and Chris Argerus and McClellan, et cetera. And one of the things that I noticed when I wrote the leadership as a learning activity paper was how people responded to the proposition that to do adaptive work, they have to actually step in and not know. And you could see people literally, you know, it's like having a physical response, a fear response of, oh, my God, I, I can't do that. That's why in the second paper I wrote about giving yourself permission to not know, because I do think when you're doing adaptive work, if you've got the courage to actually say, I don't know the answer, which is because if you do know the answer, then that's a technical response to an adaptive problem. And we know and that's, you know, Harford would say that's the critical issue in leadership. So... If I'm asking leaders to step in to an adaptive problem and collectively say we don't know the answer, then what I propose is that you don't know the answer, but here are some frameworks that you can use in the chaos to give you to use as navigational tools to guide you. And the first tool, I think Heifetz's work around adaptive leadership is just seminal. And so, you know, Heifetz makes the point, you know, when you begin, actually step back and ask the question, what's really going on here? 
So give yourself the permission to be a bit confused. And so I do say to my clients when I'm working with them, if this stuff doesn't make you feel a bit queasy in the stomach, then you're probably not looking at the problem hard enough. You haven't really engaged with the challenge. You know, you haven't engaged with the wicked problem that you're facing into. So I think there's that, you know, orientation to framing the problem as an adaptive one. And then I think you do need, it's a collective endeavor to solve a complex problem because no one individual has enough perspective or enough, it's not a lack of being not smart enough. It's just no one individual can know enough of what's going on to have a fuller understanding of the complexity of the problem. So I do think you need a team and I think teams need to be well-designed and hence why I think the six conditions are a really good beginning point because the first question a leader needs to ask he or her or themselves is, well, do I need a team? And it's funny, but a lot of people are surprised by that question because often they'll just assume a task needs a team, but not all tasks need a team or they might need different types of teams. So the second frame that I encourage leaders to, you know, so we've opened up the door, we're dealing with the physiological response to anxiety of, I don't know, giving myself permission to not know, I'm trying to work out what's really going on here. Therefore, I decide I need a team to do this. So what sort of team do I need and and who do I need on that team? So that's a place to begin. And just, Rick, one piece of research that I do love, and this comes from Richard Boyatis, he talks about the fact that, so if you think about an adaptive problem, it immediately engages the sympathetic nervous system as an anxiety response to not knowing. I mean, that's just a physiological response of anxiety. So that's the sympathetic nervous system, and which is very, can, you know, shuts down can lead to task orientation and shut down relational relating and close us off to learning. So the best way to actually open up to learning is through the parasympathetic nervous system. And Boyatzis's research shows that one of the ways leaders can do that is actually by focusing on the other and coaching others in that complex task. So if you've got a team as a leader, you think I'm going to orient myself to coaching and supporting the team, you immediately create a space for learning in that you attend to the physiological response you find yourself in. So I think the second thing is teams. And then the third piece, and this is why I bring in Jervis Bush's work around clear leadership is a well-designed team has a compelling purpose, but a compelling purpose is not just something written on a piece of paper. It's something that's created directed by a leader, but co-designed by team. And it's not an object, but it's a living thing. And that purpose needs to, you know, comes through dialogue. And that dialogue is not particularly prevalent in most organizations today. Most organizations spend, if you notice, most people in teams spend most of their time telling each other what they know, and they don't tend to inquire upon what someone just said. So I think Jervis's work around clear leadership and how to have a, you know, create a partnership where people can have a really productive dialogue is a key part of the puzzle. So that's why I bought those three. And then if you dig further down, you, there's lots of stuff to sort of dig into, but it just gives leaders a start point. Yeah. And I think I agree with you. I would, I'm sure this is probably the case in Australia. I know enough about Australia. Certainly in this country, the fruit we are bearing for leaders around the struggle to even admit that they don't know what's going on here is steeped in a long history of educational reward for knowing answers. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And the lost opportunity cost there is that we haven't stimulated people's curiosity to wonder what's going on here. 
So we find ourselves, I think you and me find ourselves in this position of doing rudimentary education that should have probably happened when people were seven, eight, nine, ten years old to give them a fighting chance to be able to get grip on some of these challenges they're facing because they can't even see the distinction that you're making between or what HIFITS would make between a technical problem and a messy, complex problem. And so the work is challenging, but it takes me to a place. And first, I want to ask you this question, because you're a writer, among other things, and you write papers. And I know that just the craft of writing is its own piece of work. My father was a newspaper writer for 45 years. So so is mine. So is so is mine. So, you know, this. you probably heard this line, you write the book and then the book rewrites you. And so I'm curious in your writing part of your professional life. How has the exploration of figuring out what you're going to do, how you're going to put it together, what you learn in the composition changed how you think about the work that you do? It's interesting. I've come to writing very late. And these two papers are the first thing I've you know, actually had published in a broader sense. And particularly when I wrote the first paper, it took me about four years because a, a colleague, I was working with colleagues at Oxford through my EY work and I remember standing up the back of the room and Dr. Atif Ansar, one of the faculty members there, you know, as a classic academic said to me, well, what are you writing? And I went, oh, I'm not writing anything, you know, because I'm a practitioner. But then it sort of, the wheel started turning, oh, what am I writing? And then I thought, well, I don't have anything to say. And I went through this sort of existential, I've got nothing interesting to say. And, you know, I literally wound around, sort of went around this circle for about three years. And I eventually came to this idea of writing a series of blogs. And it was my colleague, Tony McKay, who actually offered to put those blogs together in a paper. But what struck me was actually after writing the paper, I was like, oh, that's just what I think. And I've been thinking and saying this for 25 years, I think. That's what I thought I'd been doing. And no one had been that interested. But once I wrote it down on paper, all of a sudden it became, you know, people were like, oh, that's really interesting. And so there's something quite different about once you do the work of putting it in a narrative in an order, like a good journalist, and actually getting it down and ordering your thoughts and making it digestible, that it has a different sort of nature to it and all of a sudden a different way of engaging with people. So that I've really found I've enjoyed. It's in, it's interesting. I don't know how the ideas don't seem, once I get the idea, it doesn't seem hard to write, but it's actually, I haven't worked out. I don't know what the creative process is that gets me to the point where I can just sit down and write it. There's a third paper that I'm trying to work out to, to turn this into a more corporate facing document. And I've been stuck on it for about eight months and I still can't work out how to solve it. So I'm in that process. And it's also made me, and this is, you know, imposter syndrome, we all have it, but it's taken me a long time to find my voice. And, you know, I've just turned 60. So, you know, I just feel like I've found my voice. So in some ways, I feel a bit embarrassed by that. It's taken a long time to get here. So I think it's, you know. Yeah. And I I think for the work that you do, the length of time you've done it, the same would go for me. We underestimate the experiences we're having and the conversations we're having with a diversity of people facing similar challenges. And we are, in some ways, the connective tissue that holds those conversations. And we're the only ones who can probably put words to the dynamics that are going on in the situation. So to the degree that we care about the people who are trying to solve this and the world we live in, and we're, we're almost quasi obligated to struggle to figure out how we add this into something out of us, a paper, a book or something for the common good again, you know, whether three people or a million people read it, uh, I think it needs to be there as part of the lexicon so that somebody down the road could find it. Yeah, it's hard, but most of life is hard sometimes, right? (laughs) 
to that point you made about you know children eight nine ten have this curiosity i mean what i do know is that the current education system you know is built on something that was fit for purpose for the 19th you know century industrial revolution and yet and we've known for 50 years this model is no longer fit for purpose and yet around the world we really struggle to bring to life a new way of learning so that children don't have the curiosity crushed out of them at the age of 10 because we need that i mean this is you know ken robinson's you know video from 2006 which is quite famous you know talked about it and we're still struggling you know around the world to actually create education systems where children can truly learn and thrive and that's you know hence why i'm privileged to be doing the work i am with south australian education system because they literally have got a strategy around that which i think is some of the best work i've seen globally around creating a whole system for public education where children can express their own learner agency because that requires teacher agency which requires leader agency which requires you know bureaucrat agency so they've literally as they say they're trying to flip the system and you know, do something really i think really beautiful which i'm very excited about okay so here's a question that you're going to be familiar with but maybe you even have an answer off the cuff but hopefully you'll have to think about it so we learn more from our leadership failures than we do our successes so this podcast has a secondary focus besides having people like you on sharing their stories about what they know about leading. It's also to provide some information for people who might be a little further back on the trail of leadership development. So if they listen to you and I talk, they may pick up a few things that they could use rather quickly and we expedite their development. So if you don't mind, an example or two of a failure of leadership on your part and what you learned from it. So I've got a, a sort of, a, I have been thinking about this, Rick, because I've obviously listened to your podcast. I've got a quick one and then I'll see if another one comes up. But many years ago, working with one of my mentors and we had been in a meeting with a client and I was feeling really chuffed about the work I'd done. I felt like I'd uh, worked with the client and you know been very insightful and helped the client find new solutions to complex problems. And so, um, you know, I felt, was feeling very positive about my contribution and I walked out of the meeting and we were, my colleague and I were walking down the road and, you know, I sort of felt my chest puffing out and strutting as I would, feeling confident about myself. And we were debriefing the meeting and, you know, I said, well, how do you think that went? And she said, well, the problem is that we came up with a solution, but it was our solution. And our job is not to come up with the solution. Our job is to get our clients to come up with the solution. And what I'd done in that meeting was given them the solution versus actually help them find their own solution. And that was a, one of those moments, literally, and I think it's framed how I've seen consulting ever since, is that I think our job is to work with our clients to help them find their own solutions because we learn better when we discover it for ourselves. And that's a much harder thing to do because, and you know, the reality is I think a lot of the consulting that's done these days is from an expert model. I know that you referenced Donald Schoen's work you know, from an expert model, not a process model. You know, people get paid to come up with solutions, but I just think that model's broken inherently. I think there is absolutely space for that model, but I think we need to create a consulting industry where it's okay to walk in and, you know, you've had people on your podcast speak about dealing with messy problems, where we create space for us to learn together, which means that consultants need to learn with their clients. Yeah, and I do think that and this is what we've probably been a baseline in this conversation here, but make it more explicit, which is one, the candor to tell a client that we're going to go on a learning journey together. And there's going to be a lot of things that come up that I don't have the answers to. 
but there's nobody else you're going to get in here has the answer to these things. So we have to go on this journey together. And I think that's an important experience for people to have because it starts to reacquaint them with their own learning and then gives us a chance that maybe they can spread that to their team to start with. And then so it goes and so it goes. I guess you could say that we're in the re-education business, the rewiring of education and learning here. But So let's take it to that cohort of people that are behind us in the journey and be kind of explicit. So you're an elder in the tribe here. There's younger leaders coming behind. One or two pieces of advice that you wish you'd have had back there that you think might have made things more useful for you that people might consider? So I'll talk to it directly as a consultant because that's the world. I've been, if I look at my career, I've been a consultant in one way or another for all 35 years. One thing I say to younger consultants is always, you know, look after your peer group. More often than not, I've seen people fail in organizations where they, you know, become focused on, you know, their boss and or their boss's boss and sort of look up and, you know, try to be clever and, and sort of show themselves to be the best to their superiors. When I actually think success in complex organizations is where you look after one another in a peer group and actually grow together. And that's where I've seen particularly consultants grow and learn. And I've, you know, I've got to say, some of the work that I've loved the most is helping young consultants grow up and step into leadership roles and lead and grow. And it's always been that they've looked after each other. So they've done it in a collective sense. And then the only other thing, and, you know, I always, when I'm working with leaders and wanting to know, you know, what's their aspiration, like, what do they care about? It's often, you've got to find where the joy is. And so I do actually do a lot of work with leaders around understanding what's their intrinsic motivation for the work and trying to actually find that spark that gives them energy to continue the struggle as you talk about. So I think I would encourage every young leader to actually you know, reflect on what is it that gives them joy. And not that that's all the, you know, it's not just a hedonistic joy, but actual joy that comes from doing something that's, you know, bigger than yourself. So, but that takes time to find, you know, it's not just something that pops up and it's not a, you know, it's not a marketing gag. It's not a tagline. This is something that's visceral, intrinsic. And, you know, I feel like it's that idea of the Japanese idea of polishing the stone. It takes time. So I encourage, reflect on what gives them joy and find those places and, you know, that sort of appreciative, try and bring more of that into your life. because. You know, I heard a wonderful quote the other day, we move in the direction of the questions we ask. You know, when you find what you intrinsically care about, then you'll know it'll prime you to look for that in the world and put yourself in a position where you can, you know, create a condition for yourself where you can do your best work, if you like. All right. So I'm going to ask you to take your consulting hat off now and say, when you look at yourself today, and you're going back those years you sort of took us through, and your own committed effort to learn about yourself and your craft and how you can be helpful in the world. How are you a healthier, more useful person to yourself, to your family, and to your community because of this journey? That's a big question, Rick. I hope I am. I can't guarantee that my wife and my son would tell me. But So in recent years, I've taken more time to stay physically fit, and I'm taking more time to be aware, you know, sort of meditation. My meditation practice is part of me wanting to actually be more in the here and now. I suppose I'm striving to be, find more equanimity in my day, to find more balance. I've, interestingly enough, as a younger person, I was known for being very passionate, but actually passion can lead you to tip over one way or another and lead you into extremes. And I've got myself into trouble over the years, you know, maybe going to extremes. So, and 
becoming more humble in the fact of recognizing I don't know the answers. And in fact, there's a really liberating, there's, there's liberation in giving yourself permission to not know the answers, to be, you know, not sure. I used to really look at people who, who were really confident and knew the answers. And I used to sort of be quite jealous of their capacity to walk through life, you know, confident in, you know, knowing what they were doing. And I sort of now realize actually that's a fantasy. In fact, getting more comfortable with not knowing what's going on and still being able to stay present and alive to whatever's happening. You know, my big striving is to learning how to be with the other, be it my wife, my son, to actually be really present. You know, I remember when I was in Singapore with my family, I was traveling so much, I ended up having to take my family with me. And we were in Singapore, it was on a Saturday afternoon, the work was starting on Monday, and I'm in the pool with my son, he's five years old, and I'm thinking about work. And he looks at me and says, Dad, you've got your work face on. <laughs> you know, and I just went, and that's a long time, that's 14 years ago. So I'm still struggling with that, you know, being really present for the other. And I think if we can all do that, we're going to have a better chance of, you know, making it through this mess. So, All right. So I'm going to give you the last word. Anything you want to say that we haven't discussed? Anything you want people to know that you think is useful before we draw a curtain on this? Yeah, I suppose I'd love leaders to reflect on how they're learning on a day-to-day basis and giving themselves the permission, the joy, the curiosity to actually to not know and to see what can evolve when you do work collectively together to solve complex problems and find the joy that's, you know, comes from that. I think there's we can create a lot more space for that in organizations today and we'll have a better chance of navigating through the chaos. So I just, you know, I'd encourage every leader to ask themselves the question, how do they bring some learning into their day-to-day life? Great. Nice ending. Nick Conagrave, thank you very much for coming to the Swamp and sharing your ideas. It's been fun. Thanks, Rick. It's been a great privilege. So thanks very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you for listening to 10,000 Swamp Leaders with Rick Torset. Please take this moment and hit subscribe to follow more Leadership Swamp Conversations. 